Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. My name is Danielle Vogel, and you're listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio, a show about the little things you can do to minimize your personal carbon footprint. This show is all about empowering you to take control of the pace of progress you're making just by being a little bit more mindful about the way you eat, drink, shop, and think. This isn't hard stuff, but we'll show you just how easy it can be when you know exactly which small things really do matter. If fighting climate change is something that's important to you, or possibly just something you're curious to learn more about, please consider subscribing to Everyday Enviro wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Phil Sambal, actual rock star, as well as executive director of Oasis Community Partners. Phil, welcome. Hi, Danielle. First of all, tell us a little bit about Oasis Community Partners, mission goals, projects. Sure. So Oasis Community Partners is a DC-based 501c3 uh, that is dedicated to improving food access and community health. Um, We do that largely through the Good Food Markets uh, retail stores, of which our pilot location is located in Ward 5 here in D.C. Um, We have locations opening in Ward 8 and in Prince George's County. Um, Later this year, early next, depending on some construction schedules, (laughs) but uh, in the near future. Um, And and Good Food Markets is a mission-driven business, so a social enterprise that Oasis uh, is the majority owner of, um, along with some of the founders and and folks like myself who helped to get Good Food Markets off the ground here in DC. Um, that and, and Good Food Markets is dedicated to the food access part of that, right? So um, you have food deserts, areas where there's no access to fresh food, uh, and Good Food Markets is a grocery retail platform that is built from the ground up to thrive in communities that cannot support a traditional supermarket. So what sort of programs does Oasis Community Partners uh, put forward other than offering Good Food Markets? Yeah, so um, Good Food Markets is, uh, you know, there to capture that existing demand for fresh food that isn't being met uh, by the supermarkets. Um, What Oasis is really designed to do is to provide additional educational resources for community members who would like to improve their diet and health and nutrition, um, but for maybe some... Uh, cooking classes, right? So that's our longest running program in partnership with the DC Public Libraries. Um, so, you know, kind of getting at the core of, okay, I know broccoli's better than a Big Mac, but how do I make it so that I like it and my family likes it and I can store it for a few days um, and, and take it with me to work or to school or to wherever um, and, and continue that healthy diet? Um, we've expanded on that this year with Howard University Medical School and devised a personal shopper program, uh, which we call Eat Good, Feel Good. Very good. Um, and this is directly out of customers coming into good food markets, sometimes with notes from their doctor saying, uh, I need to lose weight, I need to eat more fruits and vegetables, uh, I'm pre-diabetic, whatever the situation might be. How do I do that? 
Uh, and, you know, we're, we're engaged grocers and, and we understand personal health to a certain degree, but we're not doctors. Uh, and we wanted to have a channel where uh, we could direct those folks so that they could get medically informed advice. So that's where the Howard University Medical School comes in. Uh, their nutrition science uh, students and nursing students have worked with us uh, this year to develop a curriculum uh, that's a free six-week program at Good Food Markets. Uh, folks come in, we do like a food diary, we start to do a store tour, we do a couple tailored cooking classes, and then that person leaves with a plan for how to uh, make some simple changes in their diet um, so that they're eating the foods they like to eat uh, and they're creating them in a way that is healthy. That's awesome. Uh, those so are I, some examples. Of I heard you, sorry to say at the outset, that the, um, that the cooking class program was a partnership with the libraries, but mm -hmm. it sounds like you're also offering cooking classes in the store as well? Not in the store yet because our current store is too small. We will do that in our Ward 8 store where we have a community space that is directly adjacent to the store and accessible through uh, our, our commercial kitchen there. Uh, then we'll be able to do things in the store, so to speak. Very cool. Um, but right now we're doing those cooking classes at the DC Public Library, Woodridge Public Library. Um, so we go in with a hot plate and all the ingredients, and we are prepping and cooking and sharing that meal right there in the library. Awesome. So it sounds like there is this really sort of fruitful, nourishing symbiosis between Oasis Community Partners and Good Food Markets where the programming is consistent. Um, and in some places you can house, you know, just things like uh, store tours and, and personal shopping mm -hmm. and in other places you've got to find other locations. You mentioned a store in Ward 8. So tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for the Good Food Markets part of this partnership. Sure, sure. And and yeah, you've, you've got that right. I mean, Good Food Markets is there as the platform and Oasis is building up those other services. Um, based on community needs. Um, so in, in Ward 8, you know, you have a situation where it's the most underserved ward in the district uh, from a food access perspective. Um, there is one grocery store serving 75,000 residents. Taken together with Ward 7, the two wards east of the Anacostia River, you have about 150,000 people being served by three full-service grocery stores. And that's not enough? Um, <laughs> <laughs> by no math is that enough. Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot of ways to slice food access, right? And, and I think the important thing to realize is that people are making it work, right? They are eating for the most part. Um, they are cooking at home. They are eating healthy. Um, they are conscious and, and, and uh, focused on the health of themselves and their family. Uh, what is not working is how long it takes to do that, how frequently we can bring fresh food into the home, mm -hmm. um, the, the expense overall that we're paying for that, inclusive of transportation, time, childcare, waste, mm -hmm. because we're not able to get there very often, so maybe we overbuy lettuce or something and don't get to use it all. Um, and, you know, at the, at the core of this, too, is, you know, the food that you're purchasing in the supermarket is not necessarily the healthiest, and certainly what fills the gaps here in food desert communities are corner stores, liquor stores, carryouts, fast food joints, and that's certainly not healthy. Food. Certainly. Um, um, and so that's really the crux of, of what brought me, and I think what brings a lot of people to the food access issues are the health disparities that result. When we opened our store in Ward 5, you had a 25% obesity rate. Um, you had the highest rates of cancer in the district. Also happens to have the highest uh, industrial concentration of any ward in the district. Probably some environmental elements there. Yes, there certainly are. Um, we have all those trash stations and, and uh, uh, other industrial uses there in Ward 5. Um, look, those have to go somewhere. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, this isn't a, a zoning policy podcast, but um, you know, 
uh, directly food related. I mentioned 25% rates of obesity. You had diabetes rates that were twice the district average, which is higher than the national average. Um, and you see these things uh, in Ward 7 and Ward 8 as well. So that's, that's really what we're focused on. A, you have to have that access point, that place to go to get the food. You have to know what to do with it. And I think that the most important layer is that you're socially supported in all those decisions, right? So a lot of what we're doing, especially with community partners, and that's community partners is in our name because, you know, that's what we do. Um, we, we have partnered with over four dozen community-based organizations, um, national organizations, uh, local uh, and uh, government entities um, to present these programs. But really, uh, what we've seen over the last few years and our partners and, and with our events is moving away from like the health fair to like, hey, come to this fun party where you're also going to try fresh food. You're going to get to taste things. You're going to get to take stuff home. You're going to get recipe cards. You're going to get exposed to all of these other ideas and resources that are available to you. We're all just there to have a good time. And then all these other things are there because who are you really getting when you put out health fair? Certainly. You know, it's, a, yeah. it's a really small subset of people. So you create a fun activation that draws people through the doors, and incidentally, you get to enjoy good food while they're there. So exactly. as any good lawyer would, um, <laughs> I'm going to lay a foundation before we dive deeper into this very important subject. So uh, your store is called Good Food Markets. Uh, Correct. Define the term good food. Oh. Um, for myself? Or at large. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Uh, for, for us at Good Food Markets, what good food is, is fresh, healthy food that's affordable, period. That's what we're focused on. Mm -hmm. So yes, we're trying to bring local food in there. Yes, we sell organic products. Um, those I would also put in under the umbrella of good food. Mm -hmm. But given the choice between an expensive, more sustainable product that I can't sell and a less expensive, less sustainable product that I can sell, at Good Food Markets, we're going to take that product we can sell every day of the week. Which has nutrient density, of course. Like that, that is not where the line is drawn. Right. It's we, not affordable at the expense of nutritional. Absolutely. And, and we're trying to bring nutrition, nutritional, nutrient-dense food, I, I like that term a lot, um, into the affordability range. Mm -hmm. People think that food should be or is more expensive and we can have that discussion too because it's a fun one. <laughs> Tune into last week's podcast of Everyday Enviro. <laughs> I, I hope we get to uh, uh, the part about switching some of our, our, our commodity subsidies towards mm -hmm. organic agriculture. Uh, but for the environment that we're in today, what's most important for us at Good Food Markets is getting fresh, healthy food into people's hands and mm -hmm. that they are going to eat that food, right? Uh, it's not enough just to give away a bunch of food. Right. People have to really be using it. So part of getting it into their hands is offering it at an affordable price, but it's also getting them through their door to begin with, to, through your door or through our door to begin with. Um, and you sort of alluded, I really like the, the way you put it, like people are going to come to a black party, but they're not going to come to a health fair. So at Glen's Garden Market, we think a lot about our role as not just a grocer, but an activated community center. At Good Food Markets, obviously, you, you take the same approach by design. Can you tell us about ways you engage your neighbors beyond just selling them good food? Mm -hmm. Details. Yeah, and uh, I'll say at the top that breaking down that barrier that the front door represents is the hardest part of any retailer's job. But particularly for us, um, being a fresh food store in a community that, like ours, uh, where we operate in Woodridge, there had not been a full service grocery store for over 20 years. Wow. So people just weren't 
thinking about it. We still have had people this year, our fifth year of operation, walk through the door and go, oh, is I this live new? up the street and I've never been yeah, here before. I'm, I'm two blocks away. <laughs> nice. So I had that conversation <laughs> in my store two days ago. I said, that's my least favorite sentence. Really? Well, you know, <laughs> it'll eat at you, right? But you just won that customer, so it should make you feel a little bit good. It's a that, good like, perspective. They did you. discover you. Yeah, it took five years, but that's that's our fault, right? <laughs> that it took them five years. They they made it through the door. Um, and so we have you know the the same kind of like swimming upstream that any new retail store does. Like, do you exist? Do I know what you sell? Am I going to take a chance of walking through the door? Maybe I can't afford anything in this store, right? Um, Maybe it's not air quotes for me. Exactly. And that phrase and that concept is really at the core of, you know, introducing yourself to a community to start with. So to begin to answer your question directly, that's where we start. Mm -hmm. Going to community meetings, going to other people's events, health fairs, uh, parties, uh, neighborhood association meetings, uh, you know, basically anyone who will give us a table or five minutes at the top of their meeting or at the bottom of their meeting. Um, to talk about who we are and what we do. So you're finding sort of existing intersection points with the community and um, sort of integrating into this. Absolutely. But at the store, what have you found, what have been the most impactful activations? Getting out there and meeting people, going to where people are and introducing yourself, um, letting them know what you're about. Uh, Flyers are fine, but talking to someone face-to-face, it's the most expensive form of marketing. But for us who thrive, and I think this is the same with Glenn's, on the half mile radius mm-hmm. around the store where 90% of all of our sales come, or the one mile radius where 100% of all of our sales come from, uh, say for some, some tourists who are in that week living right. within the half mile sure. radius, right? Um, that's, that's everything. I agree uh, completely. The, everything the hand-to-hand us. retail is... It is face-to-face. It is getting out there. It is doing that over and over and over again because mm-hmm. they forget about you. And the things that they bought two years ago are not the things they buy today. Mm-hmm. And they want to know that you're paying attention to them. Absolutely. Um, Building and, a product mix to reflect their interests. Yeah. Um, and evolving that mix over yeah. time. Uh, you know, which mm-hmm. after kind of getting out in the community and talking to people, the next part is like formal surveying, focus groups, one-on-one at the store. You're checking out. You know, we we are sort of trained to say, like, even even folks who don't get it in their training still say, did you find everything OK? Mm-hmm. Right. It's such an easy question. We all say yes to because we don't want to ha- go through the rest <laughs> of that the conversation. <laughs> but what we found is that you ask one more question, my favorite of which is, was there anything you were looking for you didn't mm, find? That's a good one. That opens the floodgates. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, I was looking for this thing. Oh, we have that. It's on the bottom shelf. Right? Yeah. Another feature of Good Food Markets is we stock more products per square foot than almost any other mm-hmm. store. Right? We are facing, facing, facing. High and tight, man. 1,600 products and 900 square yeah. feet. Okay. It's a site to behold. You should check it out at Rhode Island <laughs> Avenue. What's the, what's the address? 2006 Rhode Island Avenue Northeast. Awesome. Or goodfoodmarkets.com yeah. on the web. Um, so I have said before, but it is a lot different to shop for a grocery store than at a grocery store, and people don't necessarily understand that. Um, before we open our doors, we have to contemplate everything somebody walking through the doors might want, and then we just have to pay really close attention to what they actually need and build a product mix that reflects the needs of the community. Yeah, um, We've probably, you know, way more than quintupled our product mix since the day that we opened just by paying attention to what people are shopping for Mm -hmm. um, asking the question and then you know on occasion showing up at Whole Foods and like 
creepily following our neighbors around the store. You can tell who shops at Glenn's. They're carrying a Glenn's Garden Market reusable bag, and you can mm-hmm. watch what they're putting in their grocery basket. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Or where those larger retailers are facing things. Mm-hmm. Where, where's the stuff in the store? Exactly. Um, exactly. So um, because you're engaged in like those like really intense activations, the hand-to-hand retail, I bet you developed some pretty strong relationships as a result of, of those efforts. Can you tell us a story or two about a particularly inspiring community connection that you've made? Sure. That's a very on-the-spot question. Mm-hmm. Who's your favorite customer <laughs> and why? <laughs> well, I offend, uh, you know, uh, 11,999 other people. <laughs> Make me... it a caricature. So this is like a couple people combined. <laughs> no, I'll, 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 be, I'll be completely honest. You know, my favorite customers are the ones who see us as this place that they can go and talk about the things that they're interested in, but that they don't necessarily know about. Mm. Um, So like that customer I talked about earlier who comes in with a doctor's note or comes in and says like, you know, I hear all this fuss about fill in the blank hot product. Why? Why What what is it about CBD? What is, uh, you know, what's so great about, you know, even simple stuff, oranges, you know, Um, those are my favorite customers because they come back over and over again. Um, because you're positioned as now kind of an authority on the good food movement. Or they can, they're comfortable coming in and just being there mm-hmm. and, and having questions. What is this, right? Try to go into a Whole Foods produce section yeah, right. and ask the guy <laughs> who's restocking the pineapples what he's doing. <laughs> what is this? And, and, and go a step further. Why is this good for me? Mm-hmm. Why should I care? Why should I be here? Um, what is this doing for me? Um, because it's not easy to eat this way, right? Like I think there's, there's those barriers that we see too where uh, healthy food is bland, healthy food is more expensive, mm-hmm. healthy food is, is too complicated to, to make and prepare. You know, these are the things we're trying to break down. Um, you know, uh, we get questions like, I need to eat more fruits and vegetables. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. You know, do I just buy a bunch of fruit and, and carry watch it, compost it, carry it around in my bag? You know, like these are like practical questions that people have who are trying to do something for themselves. Make a behavioral change. Yeah, which Absolutely. is really, really hard and oftentimes without that social support. So if Good Food Markets is that once weekly place where they come and buy all their produce and they know they're going to be supported mm-hmm. in that decision, that is a really powerful driver in the community. Do you guys do recipe cards? We do recipe cards. Awesome. We do recipe cards from other people too. So Mm -hmm. you'll see DC Central Kitchen recipe cards. You'll see Capillary Food Bank recipe cards. You'll see our own recipe cards. Very cool. And every monthly cooking class that we offer features the monthly produce special in Good Food Markets. Love it. Um, So, you know, in trying to create that, you know, what what we say in our our grant materials are mutually reinforcing Mm -hmm. retail and programmatic strategies. AKA choose your own adventure. (laughs) (laughs) And if somebody wanted to sign up for one of the food tours or the personal shopping experience, Mm -hmm. how would they go about doing that? Um, The easiest way is to email fellows at goodfoodmarkets.com. You could also just go to the website and fill out our our online form. It'll come to us and we'll pass it through to the right folks. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So we're talking with Phil Sandball about Good Food Markets and the notion of neighborhood groceries as community centers. We're going to take a short break and when we get back, we'll dive into the economics of the good food movement. Oh, yeah. Back in a sec. Thank you. 
Welcome back. This is Everyday Enviro, a show about the small things you can do to reduce your personal carbon footprint. I'm Danielle Vogel, founder of Glens Garden Market, and I'm joined today by Philip Sambal, executive director of Oasis Community Partners. We've been talking about good food markets, um, his store up Rhode Island Avenue, and now we're going to jump into some potentially uncomfortable territory, the economics of the good food movement. <laughs> Phil, I speak to a lot of groups about what we're doing at Glens Garden Market, and when I open the floor to questions, I always get asked about food deserts. Glens is all about fighting climate change, but we do so from our location in DuPont Circle, not exactly a food desert. How do you choose the locations for your stores? Yeah, um, so when we were looking for a location for the pilot store, the first thing we did was take the DC food deserts map and overlay retail zoning. There were not a lot of options, right? So um, that is one basic strategy, just to understand where within the food desert landscape you could operate a store. Um, from that, we'll do a market study, look at what the existing spending in that neighborhood is. And this is the same type of study that a Safeway sure. or a Giant would do. Sure. The Can the neighborhood support a store? Yeah. And if so, of what type? Right. Where those supermarkets, if it goes below 40,000 square feet, they say, forget it. If uh, incomes are below a certain level, they don't go. Mm -hmm. If graduation rates, uh, you know, college and graduate degrees are below a certain level, they won't go. There needs to be expendable income. Right. Right. We'll dig a little bit deeper, right? And that's really the, the key part of good food markets is that we're looking to the supply side to solve the problem of food deserts, that it's really an operating model problem. There is demand in these communities. In fact, it's been systemically undervalued for so long in the supermarket industry that it's there's nothing even to look at anymore. Mm. They've they've made those decisions. They know what areas are in play in any major. It's self. It's a self-perpetuating data set. It is a, absolutely a self-perpetuating data set. Um, what we're trying to do is sort of you know drill down beneath that and say, okay, well, if you have this amount of spending in a half mile, one mile radius, um, what size store could that spending support? Right, because mm -hmm. you're not going to capture 100. percent You're not even capture 10. percent but what if you got 3%? Mm -hmm. What if you got 4%? Is that enough to support a store? And if so, of what size and, and what type? And then the hard question and answer is, can that store drive the revenue that you think you're, you, you need to, to support the operations? And that's sort of the kind of magic sauce of, of how to choose a location. Um, but you know, our, our existing store has posted some profitable months, but is probably too small to ever really get there. Mm -hmm. uh, we've built a lot of the systems and processes there. We've developed our vendor relationships there. We built our funder relationships there. Uh, you know, we'll operate that store as long as forever, if, mm -hmm. if we can. Um, it's serving thousands of residents every year. Um, we reach over 500 community members with our direct uh, programming. You know, so in the big picture, it's, it's a very valuable space. Um, if it was an entrepreneur, solely an entrepreneurial venture, we would have packed up and got home. The economics don't work. There, there is no economics. Yeah. There are no economics. It, it, it's a break-even scenario is a home run because this is not supposed to work. Mm -hmm. right? the, the demand is not supposed to be there. These people don't want that food is the number one phrase I've heard in the last seven years of doing food access work, whether it is in New Orleans where I started, here in D.C. before we opened, in new places that I go to, um, all, all around the country working with other stores, non-good food market stores and community groups that are trying to build their own local solutions to their food access issues. Co-ops, perhaps. Like yeah, co-ops co are in the mix. Right. Like, uh, I, 
you know, personally, I think co-ops are challenging. Our, our, oh, yeah. the, the model is not well suited to meeting the demand in food deserts. You have to be lean. You have to be able to move really fast. Um, and you have to have everyone pulling in the same direction. Okay. Co-ops are fat. <laughs> they, have, they staff a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of kind of structural you know, process. It's a drum based circle for crying out loud. It's, it's not about right. hard. These are great. Business decisions. These, are, these are great when you're making like kind of foundational decisions about uh-huh. how the business is going to mission based decisions, function, not economic decisions. Yeah, how it's going to run on a day to day basis. You need a Daniel Vogel uh, or a Casey Dunajic in the case of Good Food Markets to be in there every day and running that thing as tightly as possible. Mm-hmm. You need them to be thinking about should I order three pounds of meat or four pounds. That's the stuff a thousand times over it matters. that's going to it, kill you. The decisions are that granular. It you is know? that specific. I was sitting with my perishables buyer two days ago or a little bit more than that earlier last week and we're deciding on how many packages of buns to bring in for 4th of July weekend. Every you know, grocer in the country is making you, that decision. You, last but week. yeah, but they're not deciding two or three. <laughs> you know, they're deciding 200 or 300. Yeah. Um, but we're sitting there with the weather forecast and looking at the street closures mm-hmm. and like, oh, you got it. It's that freaking granular because the margins are that small in grocery so let me actually not let you out of this quite that easily um you mentioned you guys are are opening a store in ward Mm eight first of all specifically where where is it It is at south capital atlantic in the bellevue neighborhood okay and then you also mentioned that there's a notion of air quotes these people don't want air quotes this food so what specific elements of community outreach are you engaging in to dispel that notion and ensure that you have um, sort of a hospitable entry when you open? I'm not doing anything to dispel the notion. I'm getting out there to find the folks who do want that food because ah. they are there. Okay. Right? That's one. Two, in the, in the educational programming, this starts a little bit before we open, but it's really after once we're operational. Those folks who are not seeking out fresh fruits and vegetables, taking them home and preparing meals, how do we get them to just introduce one more fruit and vegetable into each meal or each day, right? And just slowly build on that. Um, so there's sort of those two tracks, right? We are attracting the customer who is already looking for that food. What we've heard in Bellevue, people are going to the Safeway down on Waterfront. People are going to the Giant, the Safeway east of the river. Um, they're going to Whole Foods in Virginia. Um, but they're also going to save a lot and Aldi and, um, you know, Costco and Walmart. And, and so there's, there's, there's a really big, you know, sort of divide there that is kind of hidden by the, the average numbers or the median numbers, mm-hmm. right? Media income is around 50,000 uh, in Bellevue. But what you see when you really drill down on those numbers is you've got folks making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year working full-time, college degrees, professional jobs, two-income households, living right next door, right across the street from someone making 15, mm-hmm. 16, 17, partially employed, part of the year, you know, maybe never graduated, maybe or didn't graduate high school or didn't go to college or, or what have you. Um, and so there's a lot of variable from the median. It's tremendously varied, yeah. right? And you've got homeowners living right next door to folks who are receiving Section 8 vouchers, and it's it's a very mixed bag. And so you look at it from the, you know, uh, Safeway corporate headquarters, mm-hmm. and it looks like there's no, way, town. there's no way this will work. Mm-hmm. And th- they're not wrong, right? Like, my, my point here is not that... Sa- <clears throat> Safeway and Giant are, are terrible companies who are, you know, forgetting the little guy. Uh, their model won't work in Bellevue, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're correct about that. What, what we've set out to do is develop a different model that will work and is able to serve those folks and can have a full produce section, basic groceries. We're not going to carry everything. We're not going to be the low price leader on everything right. either. 
um, and back to product mix, deciding where you're going to compete and where you're not, and what's actually a convenience item and what's an affordable luxury and where does all that fall is a, is a constant, you know, sort of. Yeah, it's more project. science. It's more science than art. So, um, I, for folks that haven't been to good food markets, I want to give them more of a sense of this. We've, we 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 reference corner stores. Everyone knows what a Safeway looks like. What per, you you mentioned that your store is about 900 square feet. What percentage of your product mix is fresh food and produce? Um, well, I look at it two ways. By dollar, 55% of every dollar spent in good for markets okay. is a perishable category. That was actually the next question is what's, what percentage of sales? Yeah. But On a product mix basis, it's probably closer to like 20 or 30% just because there's so many, you know, we have 100 spices, <laughs> right? Right, and just takes uh, up some footprint. Yeah, it's, it, it's on three shelves in, in the cooking section, right? 100 produce items takes up 16 feet. So uh, on a on a Pro rata share of total SKUs, it's 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 less, probably about twenty or thirty. I'm not sure exactly. Okay, so about a quarter of your actual um, geometric footprint mm-hmm. is driving about fifty five percent of your sales. That's right. So what that means is you've built a an, an option for people to get fresh food in what otherwise would be a food desert, and they are choosing to purchase fresh food. Yes. So in fact, the first research partnership we ever had was with the University of District of Columbia, and we were looking at what our SNAP customers bought in the first year of operations. And that was the biggest thing of dispelling the quote unquote, these people don't want that food mm-hmm. myth. Wrong. The number one pro, uh, department was produce. The number two was refrigerated groceries. There were only two sugary sodas in the top selling hundred items. And yeah, there's some candies and snacks and things like that, but most of them are 10 cent lollipops. Mm-hmm. You know, it was overwhelmingly fresh, healthy food. All right, my friend, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you build it and stock it right and staff it right and keep it clean and get out in the community and let people know you're there and then make sure you are there when they show up to greet them, then in five years you can break even. Yeah, that, that, my way was pithier. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously that's what I meant. Yeah. If, you, okay. if you're out in the world thinking about... I was in my grocery about... store for 14 hours last night on <laughs> Sunday of a holiday weekend and the last three of it were in the dish pit, man. I know what it means. Yeah. Um, okay, so you've been in the middle of the years-long fight to bring a big grocery east of the Anacostia River. Um, we got to this a little bit more, but I kind of want to drill down harder on it. Why is it so hard to attract a big one to that part of the city? Hmm. Uh, so I'm putting my food policy council cap on mm-hmm. now. Uh, look, I, I actually have been uh, a, I don't want to say lone voice, but a dissenting voice in that the goal here should not be to attract a big box retailer for the sake of attracting a big box retailer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the current incentives around food access, which are that, namely that, you know, throw a bunch of money at a big box store until it just makes the economics work for them or... But it fakes the economics is what it does. Yeah, it, and and it creates... Like, P Street Whole Foods is Jack Evans' poster boy for how do you uh, use grocery as the anchor to spur yeah. other development. So not only, for those who haven't been in the city as long as Phil and I have, not only did, that the, um, did the creation of that P Street Whole Foods, like totally redevelop Logan Circle. Um, but it is to this date the highest grossing Whole Foods in the nation by square foot. So it is like the sort of epitome of the vibrant grocery store community center. Yeah. And they didn't want to go there and they didn't want to deal with the parking situation and all this other stuff. And basically they just threw money at them until, you know, it works. And, you know, I think I wasn't here when that happened, right? I'm here now, and when you look at what is already going on, 
in Anacostia in particular because it's right there over the bridge, but throughout Ward 7 and 8, in a quiet way, single-family homes are, are flipping, are, are going from long-term legacy residents to newcomers like myself um, who want to stay in D.C. and want to put down roots in D.C., but there's not a conscious, as much of a conscious effort to create space for the folks that would also like to stay in D.C. and mm-hmm. have been here. Um, you know, so I think if you are trying to incentivize a big box retailer east of the river, you have to help them look to a five, ten year horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a much more effective uh, way of uh, driving economic activity east of the river for current residents while meeting the food access need would be to incentivize more small stores. Um, not to say that there should be six good food markets east of the river, but I do think there are three to five locations that could support today a small format grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there were the entrepreneur ecosystem there to step up and meet that need. Um, I think otherwise you're, you're trying to incentivize a, a, a national retailer to go somewhere they don't want to go. Right. There have been so many opportunities. Walmart is paying a million dollars a year to not operate in Ward 7. Yeah. Okay, That's how much people one. don't want to be mm-hmm. in D.C. where we have strong labor laws, where we have um, you know, a, a demand that is maybe unproven from their perspective. Or inconsistent, potentially. Inconsistent, yeah. And, and so I, I just think that ultimately where are those dollars best served for the residents at D.C.? I don't think it's putting it into the hands of Safeway and letting them deliver you know, a, a conventionally grown industrialized food products to, you know, in a, in a cheaper way. Yeah. Um, I think you invest in your local businesses. I think you invest in local food systems, uh, in the district, but also that connect outside of the district. Um, and, and, and you're creating much more of an economy, uh, dollar for dollar than by just pouring it into taxes and a sort of safe way. Totally. Um, so to, to put sort of like a fine point on this, which, which has been like a really interesting sort of revelatory approach that you don't hear often because usually most people want to say Safeway or bust or that yeah. sort of thing. Um, but in terms of food access improvements, what would you recommend at a policy level sort of to empower folks to choose good food and mm. begin to address this problem of food mm. deserts? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're right to tie in food deserts and, and choice, you know, um, but I think it's a, it's a little bit misleading, okay. right, to, to say that because there hasn't been these options, right? So you want someone to do something that they've never done uh, using products that they've never used, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's challenging. I, I don't think there's one policy fix, right? There's, there's the, the sort of network of, and, and ecosystem for entrepreneurs to be able to step up. That's access to capital. So, and things like the grocery store tax credit. Yeah, it helps. It helps. It definitely helps. I mean, it is not enough to change the math for a big box store. No. Uh, it is definitely enough to change the math for a good food market. Oh, or a Glens Garden market. Or a Glens I mean, Garden we, market. We were the recipients of the grocery store tax credit in Shaw, and mm-hmm. it, it was worth, you know, if we had not gone out of business. Um, it was worth a half a million dollars to us over the course of a decade. That's yeah. significant for a business of our scope and scale. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it's not insignificant for a supermarket, but it shows you the scale of that operation mm-hmm. that, you know, that's three day sales for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, these stores are doing hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales a week. Millions. So, um, I think you need a, 
an ecosystem that supports local entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that you need a concerted education and food access programs outside of the grocery store. Uh, Martha's Table mm-hmm. does great work at this. The, com- the market at the Commons events where they're providing food, food demos, recipe cards, exposure. It's lowering the risk to take home a whole bag of fresh produce and try new stuff at Certainly. home. Certainly. And then matching dollars programs at farmer's markets, for instance. A hundred percent. Produce Plus, uh, the new produce prescription program, yeah, I think is huge. that's so cool. Can Pro- you just quickly synopsize that? Yeah. Um, so the the produce prescription program, as it's currently being operated by DC Greens here in DC, um, and I would definitely suggest people go check out dcgreens.org. I'm sure there's a lot more information and possibly more accurate information <laughs> on this. But what I do the know, top line analysis. Yeah, what I do know is that uh, this is um, uh, through uh, a participant's primary care provider. Uh, they can receive an actual prescription for fresh produce that they can take to the pharmacy at the Giant um, in on Alabama Avenue, uh, work with the nutritionist to choose products that are in line with their health goals, um, and that produce is completely free to the consumer yeah. because they're paying with the prescription functionally. That's it's awesome. an amazing program. Uh, it, it should be expanded. Um, uh, I think it will be expanded. Uh, I think it will be shown to be very successful to the people who are using it. It has elsewhere in the country. Um, and uh, that what's really powerful about it is that it allows the individual, the patient in this context, to work with their doctor, uh, and, and it increases the frequency of visits that people come to their doctor. So now there's a dialogue, there's checkups, there's visuals. It's not emergency room only. Yes, exactly. And and you're building this, this set of other services that leave the doctor's office, but that tie back to health. And starting to get that, you know, people thinking about the things they're doing outside of the doctor's office as having an impact on their health, it which sounds really been. obvious. Progress one bite at a time. Absolutely. All right. So finally, Phil, this is a show about minimizing our personal carbon footprint to the extent that, that you have them on the on front of mind. What are some things you do in your own personal life to reduce your environmental impact? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big composter. All right. Compost, compost, compost. Awesome. Um, I I think it should be a municipal program. It has the greatest economic value per uh, metric ton of carbon sequestered of any uh, other type of program like that. A thing we uh, now know. Number two, by the way, would be uh, uh, take uh, compostable packaging. Mm-hmm. So if you have municipal compost and you are able to, I don't want to say mandate because that's not always the best prescription. We live in the District of Columbia. <laughs> of course we can. Are you kidding? Yeah, you can we mandate. Need to legislate first and ask questions later. Yeah, what impact is it going to have on those businesses? But if you can, if create creating systems that uh, eliminate plastic and that are are regenerative or recyclable. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, those are the those are the two things that that I would awesome that I personally focus on. And should you choose to compost, you can bring it all for free to Glens Garden Market in uh, unlimited quantities. You can also bring it to almost any community garden in the district. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an excellent uh, uh, composting program that DPR operates, where any resident of the District of Columbia can get trained to become a composter at your community garden. You can bring your home scraps once you're trained to the community garden. Uh, there's also a number of pickup, uh, you know, private companies that are doing pickup. Uh, compost our, cab. Compost veteran cabs. Compost. One. Our favorite is Veteran Compost. Yeah, they're they're great. Uh, they do our compost at Good Food Markets. Thank you for the pro tip, Phil. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being here today. This was Thank really you, fun. Um, I could not be more impressed with the work you're doing. You're just a champion among men. Thank it's you. It's a team of, of many, many people make this happen. Um, 
but they've got a very brilliant visionary leader. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Uh, before we end our time together, let's take a moment to reflect on why climate change is a problem worth even attempting to address at the personal level. It's huge and complex, and at times it seems well beyond our control, but it's not. This is your moment of motivation coming to you today from your favorite regional newspaper and mine, the Nashua Telegraph, courtesy of student author Emma Naptra. While one billion people live with chronic hunger, the world's cattle eat enough grain to feed 8.7 billion people. And soon, we'll be growing more crops to sustain livestock than our own population. It's not just hunger, but also obesity that contributes to the scope of our malnutrition problem in America. As one billion people starve calorically, another billion starve nutritionally. And the healthcare costs of our obese population are 37% higher, which adds an extra $732 to the healthcare bill of every American, an amount that's expected to double in the next 10 years. Making matters worse, right here in America, 26.5 million people live in food deserts, meaning they lack consistent access to fresh, healthy, and affordable food. We're in a very dangerous cycle here. Lack of food access contributes to malnourishment, which increases healthcare costs and carbon impacts. Let's do what we can to help, starting with supporting the folks who are growing and making good food so they can continue their work to displace demand for industrially produced nonsense. Thank you so much for being here today, Phil. Thank you, Danielle. It was really fun. And thank you for listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio. If you like the show, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And in any event, we'll catch you again next week on Everyday Enviro. Talk then. Bye, friends. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.